The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 63 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, Relationship Therapist. The Pobscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations with therapists and changemakers. We examine how to create a deeply restorative ripple of change within ourselves and within the world around us. Earlier this season, Berkeley-based psychotherapist Molly Merson and I initiated a discussion around the American collective unconscious. It's such a complex and layered subject. And although we covered quite a bit of ground in that hour of conversation, there's still so much more to explore and so many more questions to open up. Today, we're diving a little bit deeper into this exploration of our collective unprocessed traumas and the deep healing we need. We're really talking about witnessing in a collective experience in which we're all implicated. How do we make space for more witnessing? What about responsibility, resilience, and post-traumatic growth? What about the American dream? Who's dreaming it, and who's it for? We ask about the possibility of equality. Can it ever be so? When the urgency of fighting back and holding others accountable is so palpable and necessary, where's the space for hope? Ultimately, we're asking what is true, and what do we know for sure? So welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm so excited today. I have Molly Merson back with us for a second time this season. And the last time Molly was with us, we were talking about the American collective unconscious. And we had such a great conversation that we decided to go a little deeper. Welcome, Molly. Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks. I'm super excited. I loved our conversation last time, and I'm, I'm happy we get to come back and talk again. Oh, me too. And our listeners really loved it, too. So I am thinking that they're going to love that we're in conversation again, too. Excellent. Awesome. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so we, we were talking before we started recording about fluidity and why it's so important. You know, I was saying to you that one of the things I loved about just the way that you embody life is that you you take this approach of this is how I think today and that may change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really important to me uh, to be able to have a, an opportunity to hear myself think, to think with other people, to come into a situation or uh, an interaction with um you know, some kind of understanding of myself in that moment, knowing that I will be changed by whatever interaction I'm having. And that change, you know, as long as I'm in contact with it can help me grow and help me understand uh, myself and the world and the people I'm with even better. I mean, I I think um, it reminds me of, you know, Octavia Butler I don't know if we have talked about this yet, but uh, she's often on my mind. And um, in one of her books, Parable of the Sower, there's a character who has this sort of religion that she's developing. And one of the things that she writes is, um, whatever you change, changes you. And change 
is basically changes God, changes is everything. Whatever you touch, you change. Whatever you change, changes you. And so for me, it's like we, we have to, I have to, I feel like this sort of imperativeness inside of me to be able to be free to know what I know now and to be free to take in what I don't know and, and make something new out of that. Gosh, I'm, I'm so affected by this quote that you just shared with us. Whatever you touch changes you and whatever you change changes you. Yeah, whatever you touch, you change and whatever you change changes you. It's like a, it's that sort of reciprocality, mutuality back and forth. Yeah, yeah right. It, 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 there's, there's a loop in there and it, I mean, it's like an mm-hmm. ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's life. It it's very much life. Yeah. It's, it's that understanding Oh gosh. Okay. I'm going so many places. I have to slow my brain down a little. <laughs> so, so in this kind of ecosystem of life, in this, in this process of whatever you touch, you change and whatever you change changes you in this process. There's, there's like a, there's a birth, there's a death, there's a rebirth. There's, there's like mm. all of these pieces that are constantly mm. in flux. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, I, I, I am an opinionated person and I've I've kind of always been and it's taken some work to <laughs> realize that there's more than me in this world. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will admit to that. Um, but, you know, in that process, like uh, there's also an anxiety of, you know, is what I think okay and is what I say okay and there's a lot of insecurity there. So, being able to feel like, you know, um, I can believe in myself, not just in what I think or believe, but in a process yes. that involves just what you're describing, yeah. that, that things will change and that is pretty much a guarantee. Can we go a little deeper into this belief, like how you believe in yourself? I think this is something that for so many of us, myself included, um, is the work. Of, mm, of yeah. life, of being change agents, of whatever mm-hmm. we do, whatever we put our passion and our heart and our soul in, mm-hmm. being able to mm-hmm. to know and well, to start with knowing, <laughs> to know, mm-hmm. to believe, to trust yourself, to give yourself permission to be all the things that you are. Yeah, this is so much the journey of the journey. Yeah, and um, I'll add another sort of layer of complexity in there that um, so much of it is a process of unknowing. And I want you to go deeper there, please. <laughs> um, it's funny, my my consultant and I were talking about this um, last week, but there's this process of... Um, several layered process of of knowing something and then um, being willing to enter into an experience of unknowing it so that it's kind of like we were talking about integration and disintegration. Like you, you, in order to feel like you can disintegrate or unknow something so that you can rebuild into something new, there has to be some, some kind of faith or trust or, um, you know, hope or some some kind of sense that you can um, take the risk to survive the process 
of first knowing something and then being willing to unknow it so that you can uh, know it even better. My experience personally and professionally of this like knowing to unknowing to knowing is that it's not like a full circle kind of thing. It's not like, oh, I know something. Um, Okay, actually, here's an example that comes to mind. So, you know, like uh, when I was in training, I was in school to become, you know, I was in therapy school, right? And I'm reading all these things and I'm knowing all these things and I know all this stuff about trauma, let's say, because I've read it. And then I go sit with my first patients and then I go, oh, shit, I would, well, I don't know anything. <laughs> this is so, like, you know, all kinds of things are happening. Because on some, you know, somatic level, yes, I know it, but I don't have the words and now I can't think and da-da-da. So. so that's a process of unknowing something in order to really be able to figure out what, where you are in relationship to what's happening in the room which is a different kind of knowing. Yeah. So it's not like I went back and then all of a sudden now I'm, I'm book smart again, right? It's like, no, I've taken something apart so that I can put it back together again anew with each patient, with each relationship, in each situation um, that allows my patients to teach me something and allows me to be able to change and grow with them as they need me to. So I think the process of being a therapist is very much like that. Yes. Um, yes. It is very yeah. much like that. And I, I find that there's also these, these other, th- th- there's more layers where mm-hmm. sometimes it's so much about knowing and then the unknowing and the getting back to the knowing or knowing it deeper. And mm-hmm. other times it's a place of remembering Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. remembering something innate, remembering something that that we have just forgotten. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that that brings me to sort of the American unconscious piece because you know uh, we have to call upon our ancestors in some way to do some of this remembering. Mm-hmm. And if our ancestry is as full of unprocessed trauma as the American ancestry is, oh my goodness, yes. Then what is that? You know, like there's some I was just healing that's needed here. And like, and so, so that's the question too, is like, what does that even mean? What is the deep healing when you're talking about uh, a collective experience? a socialized experience, a codified experience, right? Because now it's all this stuff is in law too. I'm, I keep coming back to, to thinking about witnessing and mm. the, the importance of the role of the witnesser. You mm-hmm. know, like as therapists, mm-hmm. we hold healing spaces where we can witness our clients one by one or couple or family by family. Mm-hmm. And we, we hold mm-hmm. a space in that. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep thinking about this this bigger collective unconsciousness that is our country. And I'm thinking we, mm-hmm. we also need a witness. We, we need many witnesses. I've been thinking a lot about that. And there's several papers that I need to read because I think um, people have been thinking and writing about this uh, 
you know? And so people have been mentioning papers that I need to read about, about witnessing, um, you know, Jessica Benjamin writes about a moral third, which is this sort of like ability, you know, this perspective outside of the binary. Um, and uh, Denny Leibowitz, I think, has written, I think it's her who's written something about withness. Mm. Sam, Sam Gerson has also written about, about this topic. And I haven't read any of these papers, and I apologize to these folks <laughs> that I haven't read their papers yet. But there, there's this, what, so anyway, that kind of informs my thinking about what is this witness we're talking about when it's a collective experience in which we are all implicated? Every single one like of it, us. Yeah. There's not an outside parent third that we can kind of look to. We have to be able to create a third while also being participants. And so there's something about that that seems really important in the American experience that we have to take responsibility collectively for collectively witnessing each other and ourselves. And I think in that process, it forms something very new. It's not a reliance on an outside force or some kind of benevolent parent who knows the way. It's like something much more participatory and urgent. I'm digesting. It's big. (laughs) It's big and it's like so interconnected, you know, it's like that mycelium, you know, it's like we're, we're, we are, we are connected to each other. Uh, Many of us live in bubbles where we don't know that we're connected to each other, um, but we really are. We really, really are. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think that on some level, it is our responsibility to be the witnesses. Who are you referring to with our, other than you? You're meaning like everybody. Everyone implicated in the American experiment, <laughs> which at this point might be the world. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's like really, and I think we can break that down. I mean, what that response is sort of like pretty generic, but we can break it down into like, um, you know, groups of folks who've been impacted specifically by other groups of folks and, and we can break it down in all sorts of different ways, but. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was, um, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but there's a reason for my tangent and I promise to come back. (laughs) There usually is. (laughs) Um, I've recently been listening to a bunch of lectures and talks about inclusion, um, more specifically around children and classroom kind of dynamics um, and social bullying and, and kind of behaviors like that and what we can do as parents to create more resilience in our children. And Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of bringing that lens a little bit into this conversation just because I've been flooding my brain with with it a little bit. But one Mm -hmm. of the biggest things that I got out of it was to to kind of see it all kind of unfolding. And Mm -hmm. there's an action that we take sometimes even in a non-action. That Mm -hmm. in in the not feeding um, the bad behaviors, 
right? Not in pointing fingers and saying, you're wrong and I'm blaming you and I'm shaming you and I'm making you see how wrong you are, which is going to turn around and make you feel even more defensive and want to act out more. But not in doing mm-hmm. that, but in, in the kind of like, uh-huh, and kind of moving on and taking mm-hmm. care of oneself. That mm. there's, there's, a, there's a shift that happens. There's a growth edge that happens. There's um, a space that opens for more inclusion. Can you say more about the, the taking care of yourself and, and moving on? Like what, what comes to mind? So in a situation where maybe a child is being picked on, let's go with something that we can kind of all wrap our heads around, right? Maybe it's mm-hmm, a play yard mm-hmm. thing. And someone mm-hmm. says like, uh, your hair looks funny. Mm-hmm. You um, are wearing that shirt again right? Or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And mm-hmm. that child can just kind of be like, yeah, and walk away. Mm-hmm. Right? But the more that they engage, they're, they're engaging. Right? Mm-hmm. And they're engaging mm-hmm. with that dynamic that's now saying, like, I'm, I'm getting what I want out of you. Right. And I think that's a really good question. Um, and, it, and it brings up a lot about what does it take for somebody to have the self, the intact self, um, to be able to say, yeah, and, uh-huh. <laughs> or yeah, uh, and bye. And, and even what does that do to a person to be in that position, yeah. to have to bear that, uh, okay, you know, this guy's being a jerk to me again, and I'm going to, you know, shift away from that. I'm going to leave the situation. Um, because then what do you do with your feelings? You need a place for those feelings. Yeah. You need people you can talk to about them. And I think that's mm-hmm. the other side of this is that you have to have um, an open dialogue somewhere. There has to be open, open spaces where those feelings can go, where they're not just getting shoved down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, what comes to mind about that is restorative justice and feeling like there's an opportunity to um, say what is wrong, what the problem is, and have a collective experience of holding of that and some sort of uh, movement toward repair of that and accountability. Um, and Can I slow you down for a minute? Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you here. And I'm wondering... Where is that process for repair and accountability? Whose process is it? Mm-hmm. Is it, I mean, it, it certainly in an ideal world, it's everybody's. But let's just mm-hmm. say that there are some offending persons who don't want to take that responsibility, who don't want to engage yeah. in that repair. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that that process can't exist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, what happens then when the you know person who has done something mean or wrong or uh, needs to you know be held accountable, if you will, uh, by the other person? Um, what if they don't want to do that? What if they're not willing to participate? And and yeah. on a big level, right now, yeah, in our country, yeah, right? absolutely, We're seeing this unfold in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I think it's really sad. <laughs> I feel like really sad about that. 
and I feel angry and I feel like because of that, that's why, you know, people are fighting back. And I think that's a necessary and beautiful thing. I'm not a pacifist. Um, you know, I think it's, it's absolutely necessary to fight in a smart way, to fight in a policy way, to fight, um, even when you're pissed off and you have to let that person know you're pissed off. Um, you know, some people can't afford to do that, right? You know, like if you're undocumented or, you know, if you're a person of color, like you can't really afford to to be on the front lines in that way because the repercussions are so much more severe for like, you know, a white kid or something. But well, And I think that's why we're seeing, we're, we're recording this in March, at the end of March. Um, and we're kind of on the heels of witnessing the survivors in Florida um, mm-hmm. from Parkland taking these major leadership roles. These are teenagers we're talking about, yeah. predominantly yeah. white teenagers, yeah. um, but really showing up with their voices in a way that maybe kids from the inner city couldn't. Exactly. There's there's a lot of um, conversation about that, which I really appreciate. Um, about what these Parkland kids are learning about that, that they've grown up in this somewhat, you know, we could say entitled way, which I think everyone should grow up entitled. Um, But in this particular way where they can access uh, their privilege Mm -hmm. and they also can learn that um, not everybody has access to that. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes um, unseen and unspoken uh, but very much lived for people with different um, experiences. Yeah. And so I think there was like this uh, way that some, I guess some kids from Chicago came to Florida and hung out with them. I don't know if you saw that New York mm-hmm. Times article. I, I think it was New York Times. It's it's interesting. It's a little bit like, I don't know, this sort of experiment of like, you know, uh, bussing the brown kids into the rich neighborhoods kind of thing. It was, it was a little like that, but it was really interesting in that um, the people, these kids uh, who are mostly white, were able to understand that, oh, like actually this happens a lot and um, we are in a particularly, you know... Uh, important position of privilege and power to be able to affect change in that way. So they're getting listened to where these kids from Chicago are not. And, you know, I mean, I think that's a piece of this is like who can speak up and who, who um, not that they couldn't speak up, but there's a different response. Yeah. And, and not nearly as much power. Yeah. And I, I find I, I keep looking towards these kids from Parkland and all over the country right now. And I'm thinking their voice is so important in this conversation because they're the next mm-hmm. generation. They're, they're mm-hmm. the legacy, right? They're the mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. that we are fucking up the world for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I think you know, they have a lot to contend with because they are, I I don't know who their parents voted for, (laughs) but maybe they were raised liberal, (laughs) you know, and there's several families who were, you know, who are not. 
And so there's a lot that, um, that they have their own sort of experiences um, because of the stuff that our generation has not been able to process, that our parents' generation has not been able to process, that they're having to, to process. Um, but I think that there's something about, um, there's something really important here about the difference between like, I love that they're speaking truth to power, but there's a difference between just flipping the script, you know, and just saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to squash you. Like, I think that they have, they, in order for change to happen, you have to fight back and create a crack in the system so that, you know, like Leonard Cohen said, so the light can get in. Right. But there's also a way in which the kids are introducing the um, ability to handle multiple subjectivities at the same time. So it's not just like one up, one down, and we're just going to flip who's up and who's down. There are several multiple different subjects here. And there are several multiple different lives and experiences and viewpoints and needs and historical traumas all sort of, you know, coming together. And it's really important, I think, to be able to not necessarily to agree with them all um, or even to support them all, but to acknowledge That there's that there's so many different places people are coming from. It's the end, end, and, end, 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 not the or, or, or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is bringing me to another piece that I want to shift us towards a little bit. And in all of this collective trauma and all of this healing that's needed, I think an important conversation for us also to be having is one about post-traumatic growth. Hmm. Tell me more about post-traumatic growth. Well, you know, it's this idea that trauma can lead to a place of, uh, yeah. right? To a place of, of seeing what the problems are, to a place right. of finding those cracks that let the light in, to a place mm-hmm. of rediscovering that integrity within us, um, mm-hmm. to remembering what we stand for. Yeah, well, and the remembering what we stand for assumes that there was something we stood for in the first place. And sometimes I think it needs to be a fresh new discovery or maybe like a remembering as in re-putting together something from pieces and parts that was never whole to begin with. I, I think when I talk about remembering, it's more along the lines of what you've just defined. I, mm-hmm. I think very often it's, it's like... Um, Oh, kind of, kind of like all of these parts of us that we never brought into our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, projections, right? I mean, that's basically what uh, what we've done in this country is made uh, projections into real life enactments of othering. It's that's what this whole country, it's you know, is based on. on. Yeah. So I was driving uh, back from the gym, you know, this morning before we met and I was just thinking to myself, like, I wonder what it would be like to ask everyone we meet that we're having conversations with, what, what, what do you believe about the American dream? You know, like, what is the dream? Do you believe it? 
is that, you know, and, and in what ways, like, uh, what does the dream have to leave out in order for it to exist? Um, can we have an American dream that's based on the reality of the fact that we've split off so much and projected so much onto other people? And I don't know, it just sort of made me wonder, like, who's dreaming? <laughs> like, what's, I don't know, you know, sort of like, um, somebody's dream is somebody else's nightmare mm -hmm. which is often the case yeah you know which which brings me back to a conversation we were having before we started recording about hope and mm -hmm. what place it serves as well as the importance sometimes even of losing hope mm-hmm Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like, I think back to this high school English class I took where we read Catcher in the Rye. And I think about this every now and again, where she, the teacher drew on the board, this brick wall and this like stick figure guy. And she said, she wrote hitting the wall of reality. <laughs> like something. This is the same class that we read Victor Frankl in, yeah. by the way. Um, <laughs> so I think about this class a lot. It was transformative, I guess. And I think about that when we investigate the American dream and what, what this country is built on, that in order to really understand it, I think we have to hit this wall of reality, which can be very bruising, painful, uh, shattering, um, all kinds of things. Because the reality is in order to have the, this you know, uh, dream of prosperity, uh, it, has to, it had to have been the way it was set up, prosperity for some, but not for all. But who gets to identify with, uh, you know, all men are e created equal? Mm. Who, who gets to identify with that? Who, I want to be part of the all men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, can I, can I be in that group? And of course, everyone's going to want to be, you know, uh, able to sort of experience the bounty of what that promises. Um, but in order for it to be like that, it had to have created the, oh, except for you and you, or you're not a man, you're three fifths of a man or whatever, you know, bullshit um, needed to happen. Uh, so many different things in order for something to be preserved. And now it's like that all men are created equal thing. It just has like shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, you know? Yeah. It's like... I, I keep getting hung up on that phrase. Yeah. You know, because even every aspect of my life that I personally look at, I, I'm, I'm trying to like kind of figure out what's just and what's equal. And like, you know, if I spend this much time with this daughter, what do I do with the other? You know, things right. like that. And... Yeah. We, we, each man is created equal. Like I hear the words, but I struggle to digest them also because, you know, it, it's not the way that we're living and right. because is it even possible to live that way? Like each man is, or each human, each person is created uniquely. Well, I, I agree. I think that uh, it, it's collapsed, yeah. you know, just even the, that's why I'm saying it like all men are created because <laughs> that's how it's written. But I it's guess. so collapsed, it's so you collapsed. know, 
And there's no room in it except for your own sort of fantasy and projection about, ooh, that sounds good. I want some of that, you know? I don't know about you, um, but I'm having like fantasies and projections that we dismantle this whole thing and rebuild. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone. <laughs> and I would bet someone listening goes, yeah, I've had that thought. <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's just a thought, but still. You know, <laughs> probably going to get me into some trouble somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you know, that's part of it. Yeah. We have, we have to get into trouble because the truth is we're in trouble already. And it's, it's so <laughs> funny that the very thing that keeps us silent and keeps us from vocalizing the thoughts that probably we're not alone in having is this fear, this fear that it might get us into trouble. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. It stops and action. It does. And it's like, there's your superego, right? There's the police, there's the state, there's the codified racism. It brings me back to all men are created equal. I want to ask, equal to what? You know, because maybe part of the fear is our fantasy is all men are created equal to God, which is like this big thing, right? But maybe the reality of that statement is someone else, like the state basically, decides to whom or what you are equal. Are you equal to a dog? Are you equal to another kind of human? Are you equal to God? Are you equal to, you know, and maybe there's, it's gotten, Maybe it was designed to be so collapsed so that it was ambiguous enough who gets to decide what equal means to whom, to what, you know, and, and that's like forever out of your hands. Uh, just, the, just the thought process behind was it designed, was that a conscious or an unconscious piece of the design? Yeah, I mean, I think about what it would take to be a slave owner you know, to, to quote, own enslaved human beings and then write all men are created equal at the same time. Like what is going on? <laughs> what has to happen? You know, I, in, in my imagination, in my head, I, I assume that what's going on is that there are peoples that aren't being seen as peoples. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what, it, what happens inside of one's own psyche that they can make that uh, compartmentalization? What is that doing to that person's mind? Yeah. What is that doing to the way they're engaging with their world? These are the people who wrote the Constitution. These are the people who you know, the white people who decided that, that they were the ones that get to decide. And, and not just white people, but white men. I mean, right. white, women white didn't men. have a voice yeah. either. Um, That's right. There, there is so much more. I think we're going to need to do a part three, Molly. Would you be okay with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I could t I'm like so invested in exploring this on a deep and unapologetic manner like i think that this has to be talked about in our field mm -hmm. you know there are a lot of people talking about um 
obviously talking about racism and, and race and whiteness and all kinds of things, you know, injustice everywhere right now. But in our field, like it, it has to be front and center because you even brought up, you know, post-traumatic growth. I mean, just that first part of it, post-traumatic is a mental health diagnosis, right? So it's like, who is coming into our practice right now who is maybe quote unquote high function, but totally psychotic because we live in a psychotic, fragmented, split off society. I have, I have know, a like, bunch of them. I have a bunch of them. I have, yeah, I have so right? many clients who are showing up in my office with fears that are so big. And yet, like as they, they pour out of their mouths and they share what these fears are, mm-hmm. I can't look at them and say, yeah, that's crazy. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Our, mm-hmm. It, it's societal stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because it's real. Yeah. yeah. It's real. And I mean, that makes me think about um, asylum seekers or, you know, undocumented folks and, you know, like the scary shit that ICE is doing of just plucking people out of their families and imprisoning them without due process for years. So there's a few pieces I just want to wrap us up with because I I think we we could so go on for hours and we we will do another. But in the interest of our time right now and our listeners, we're talking now about other, we're othering, but we're, we're talking about the other, the other countries, the other places in this world, on this globe that also have issues, that are also showing signs of, of brokenness. Yeah, and have been for a while. Mm-hmm. And so much of that can be traced back to, I think, our uh, country's um, splitting and, you know, paranoid schizoid position. I'm not going to disagree with you there. However, I'm also going to add that historically before our country was even a seedling, there were more things happening in the world. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I think the American experiment is so special because we can, we can look at it from its own sort of perspective and that's not to exclude, you know, uh, sort of, we could imagine this experience of violence and colonization that's happened even before America was happening, but perhaps we could imagine that, that the America as we know it that was stolen from the native people was like maybe the great-great-grandchild or more of other kinds of colonization and, you know, exploitation and enslavement. And like maybe we just happen to have this little Petri dish where we have a whole bunch of stuff going on in in it, you know? You know, so before we started recording, another thing that you and I were talking about was the root of the words integrity, integration and disintegration. And we were, we were just kind of playing for a minute there and you had a really Mm -hmm. kind of snarky, but awesome comment there. Do you remember (laughs) what you said? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you were talking about, you know, uh, integration and I mentioned disintegration and then you mentioned integrity or something Mm -hmm. like that, that what we were sort of talking about, like, how do you have integrity when you're in the midst of a change and figuring out who you are and developing yourself. Exactly. 
And you noticed that there's a root in all those words. And I was waiting for you to say what that was because I wasn't sure what came to my mind was great. (laughs) And then, of course, I went to make America great again. (laughs) And I was like, what is that like thing that we're being sold, you know, that some of us are buying and some of us are not. But uh, what is even this concept of make America great again? Is that some kind of pull toward an integration like that involves a splitting and a separation and a projection? And, you know, like, I don't know, just I'm fascinated by what that means to people. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it all, too. And, and I'm, I'm staying in this loop, this place of the ecosystem that we started with and thinking mm-hmm. about how we can't really ever integrate without also disintegrating, like how that yeah. is a cycle and a, and a something and how it has to be the both. Right. Yeah. 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 And so in Make America Great Again, you have both the integration and the disintegration. Mm-hmm. It's so explosive to me. Well, life is explosive. I, even- I mean, even just like, you know, a, a tree is explosive. Everything is explosive. Yeah. Trees are nice and slow though. <laughs> they yeah. calm me down. This red hat thing, man, it does not calm me down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. hear you there. <laughs> Molly, I, you know, I, I think for me, as I'm reflecting on our conversation today, and we were talking about hope a little bit and losing hope and what is it like to to hold integrity during a change and this whole ecosystem of integration and disintegration. For me, one thing that I keep coming back to is that hope for me is knowing that the cycle, this process is the way the world works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we are exploring the way the world works. I don't think the way the world works is set in stone. I think we're all astronomers and astrologers and explorers and um, courageous experiments, (laughs) you know, because we can look and say, this is what's happening right now, but I don't think we can look and say, this is how the world works. Um, And I think that's part of the hope. When I talk about the way the world works, I'm I'm solely talking about the process of integration disintegration, like the yeah. cycle. That's yeah. I'm I'm encapsulating everything in that. I'm not yeah. trying to say that a uh, per- particular society or something. And the sure, yeah. sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I mean I guess, and I'm just saying that I think even that is. Um, that is something that we can kind of uh, use as a guiding force. But um, I guess my, I guess I'm feeling a little bit like it feels important to name that I feel hesitant to even say this is how the world works because it can get so co-opted into a expectation of some kind. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I like it can get so policed by our own like, oh, but it's not, you know, <laughs> working that way. But I mean, I understand your point, which is like, when we're in this disintegrated place, we can trust. 
that it's a part of a process, you know, that we're coming up on something that's going to be really important, you know. And, and that in that disintegration process, we learn more about at least ourselves. Totally. And it is so hard. Every time I go through a transformation, I'm like freak out and I go, I I didn't remember it was this hard. (laughs) Like it sounds good. Yeah. I want to change and grow. Sure. But it is so incredibly (laughs) hard to grow. Everything about growing is hard. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think remembering, you know, like you're saying, I really appreciate that, you know, the remembering like, this is the way something can work. Like it can actually work. Like something's working. Mm-hmm. Like you're broken, but you're still working and or whatever. I, I'm, I'm going to leave us with a tangent that maybe we come back to in a future episode. Maybe we don't. But it's just th- this idea that I'm suddenly having of developmental processes, mm-hmm. right? And in the mm-hmm. context of this planet, this mm-hmm. American experiment is quite young. Perhaps we're a toddler still. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm if I'm kind of going with that framework for a minute, we are so in tantrum mode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, but it, it's I it's know. in all that acting out that boundaries are learned, that that important lessons are learned, and that growth happens. Yes. And we have tantruming on so many, in so many different places, like the kids in Florida are tantruming in such a growthful and powerful way. Black Lives Matter. So important. So growthful and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much goodness happening also. Yeah, absolutely. Molly, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to talk to you. I love talking to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. Molly, thanks for coming back with me. It's so funny how we get off of these calls and there's so much more to say. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah. You inspire so much in me that it's like, after we talk, I, I think to myself, what did I mean when I said that? And what's, you know, something gets stirred because of the way that you and I think very, I don't know even that we think differently. We think in our own ways and then it stirs something I haven't thought of, but that resonates, you know, it's like this unfolding. And I love this unfolding. This is, this is what I dream about. I dream about having conversations that do exactly this, that give us um, permission to keep thinking. Yeah. To keep evolving in our thought. To keep engaging, yeah, Yeah. in a process. Yeah, I I love this process. So thank you for coming back. I know we had ended our conversation and we're picking it back up to end the podcast, (laughs) this episode. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we wanted to come back in and talk about was hope. Mm -hmm. We had noticed that in our conversation, there there was, that's what was missing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were playing with, well, why was that? Why didn't we go there? And I, maybe I'll just start by letting you add some reflections here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, as I thought about what we talked about, I realized more and more that you had, you had brought up hope on at least one occasion, if not more. And I felt something inside of me in those moments that felt resistant to that. Yeah. Not resistant to hope per se, but just bringing it in at that moment. And I think because there's something so urgent about the conversation that we're having where 
Um, you know, people are dying, you know, and being killed and, and just so much trauma is just being repeated and repeated through racism and white supremacy and all kinds of things. I just felt like we have to, like, I don't want to get derailed. And, but I think there's something problematic about that too, because there absolutely is hope. There are so many people who are invested in thriving and in their families and communities and selves surviving and thriving and uh, a desire to create something new. And I think that that has become just such a touchstone for me that I almost even forget to name it. Ah, oh, that, that you for, almost forget to name it because it is just such a touchstone. It's just such like an of course to me that it's like, yes, we are alive and we are thinking. And just like you and I were talking about, we're talking together um, and that's hopeful. This, this experience is hopeful. Yeah, yeah. But I, don't, I, I kind of feel like that's not okay to forget to name it, mm. you know? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think of uh, some great masters in here, but what I'm really thinking of is there's this, this quality of living, like mm. that we are living now, that we are alive, mm. and that even though in many ways we're fighting for more, for better, for justice, mm -hmm. for all of these inclusion, for, for so many things, mm -hmm. if, if we allow ourselves to feel anything other than alive right now, Mm -hmm. we we've given something up we we've given something over our power mhm mm mhm mm yeah you know i'm i'm just remembering um the the aliveness uh <laughs> i had an opportunity to see pussy riot the band yeah <laughs> <laughs> fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> um and I, you know, I mean, of course I know who they are, but I don't, you know, it's like, who's, what's your favorite song? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to go see them and I felt so energized around their political message because it's basically dance music with hefty political messages attached to it. And I'm like, this is so hopeful like this is so alive like I just want to dance you know it's like you know they're they're just saying like you know fuck all these people and you know the system and we're dancing like how it was just I don't know there's something about that that I think came up for me when you were describing this it was a celebration of, yeah. of this movement yes yeah yeah being alive is is what we have Yes. Yeah. And and as soon as we forget that, I think that's where things fall apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We we have to hold on. Like we we can't take that part for granted. That's that's mm -hmm. something every day we need to live into and celebrate and honor. 
And I think that, you know, we at the same time can be afraid of death or have experienced, you know, the death of loved ones and um, in very traumatic ways. And yet to celebrate, you know, a person's life and being alive and what the potential is and the opportunities that have, you know, that can happen, um, even on a very small scale. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think in many ways, it's it's also just celebrating this life that each of us are embodying right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the hope that the life will be something we can't predict. And full of meaning. Yes. That our movements, that our messaging, that our, the things we're passionate about, the things we fight for will be full of meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that will embody us with meaning and um, there gets to be that kind of feedback loop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was telling you before we started recording this piece that growing up with grandparents who were Holocaust survivors, I was often Mm -hmm. told that I was what they lived for. And those were really heavy words. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it gave me some perspective to understand the, the little bit that I could how one might survive something so awful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that there's this this sight, this foresight of mm-hmm. what are we living for? Why are we fighting? Man search for meaning. There's Victor Frankl again. I always go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And meaning gets to be co-created and gets to be co-supported. You know, it can be an individual and personal thing, but it's also like when I go out into my garden and I just sit there for a while and I notice all the the creatures who are pulled in by the different pheromones of the plants. And, you know, this plant looks different today than it did yesterday. And just the smell and the everything like that, that's also a way in which there's a holding of meaning and hope and possibility. And life force. Yeah. Yeah. We have to keep watering it. <laughs> we do. It's yeah. it takes it takes nourishment. We take nourishment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's just such a beautiful way of of showing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really glad that we had a chance and are having a chance to have these conversations. And um I know that there's so much more to emerge from this. And you know, this is also to be transparent, a part of my own personal process of like, how do we get to be in a world that is very unjust and cruel and sometimes quite inhumane and also be alive and be, you know, be able to manifest or or participate in some of the most amazing parts of being human. Mm. I, I love watching where you go with these things. It's, it's, I know that we're going to get off this call and you're going to have a million more thoughts, which means <laughs> that you're going to probably publish a few more blog posts on this, right? <laughs> so I want to make sure that we're including a link because I know just yesterday you published another piece on hope. Yeah. And so I, I want to make sure we include that in the show notes for this episode as well as whatever you publish subsequently. Thank you. Knowing that our listeners can find that because I I love where your thoughts go and how much more you open up as you keep unfolding your own process here. 
Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to think with you, which inspires so much activity. <laughs> but also, I, I like I like you know being transparent with my growth process, and you know I find a lot that I get into sort of new territory, and then find myself going back to old territory that has been that helps me kind of create this weaving experience of. Um, growth, you know, that isn't like this linear, I'm leaving things behind, but, you know. The weaving in. Yeah, weaving in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, f- I find that I'm always looking for those threads, mm-hmm, how, mm-hmm. how they intersect and connect. And I think yeah. weaving is is a great analogy, a metaphor mm-hmm. about as, as in one's life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Molly. And I, I look forward to an, a future conversation as well. I'm sure Same. that there will be more. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Yes. Thank you again. Throughout our lives, we conform and inhibit our truest nature. We spend so much of our lives on this quest to remember our deepest knowings, to connect back to our intuition, to reintegrate our fragmented parts. I'd love you to join with us in our Wild Woman online discussion group. We're launching it this April 2018 at the end of the month for women who are ready to reintegrate these fragmented parts and for brave men who care to join us. We're going to be journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. We're going to be opening up more possibility to embrace our change-making spirits. We'll meet online at noon Eastern time, the last Thursday of the month for six consecutive months. You can go to practiceofbeingseen.com slash events to learn more. In addition to my relationship therapy practice in New York, I also mentor and consult with therapists and kick-ass change-making professionals. If that sounds like you, there's a link to click in our show notes to learn more about working with me. You can also join our community on Facebook or find us on social media at Pobscast. And I invite you to send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show, and will join us next week for another Connectfulness conversation on the Practice of Being Seen podcast, brought to you by Connectfulness. Connectfulness.